Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. On tonight's program, we honor community. We go to Venezuela with author, activist, and professor George Chicarello Mar, and we speak to him about his latest book, Building the Commune, Radical Democracy in Venezuela. He's also the author of Decolonizing Dialectics, as well as The People's History of Venezuela. We then come back home to San Francisco's Mission District and focus on an essential institution, Acción Latina, which has been producing El Pecolote, one of the country's longest-running bilingual newspapers. And we hear from poets as well as one of the editors of an important bilingual poetry anthology, Poetry in Flight, Poesía en Vuelo, which is now available and is published by Acción Latina. And we begin this program with a tribute to Berta Cáceres, a Honduran indigenous leader on the first anniversary of her assassination. This tribute is a poem written and read by revered poet Rafael Jesús González, accompanied by Gerardo Marín on flute. Stay tuned. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. Today we celebrate International Women's Day, and Rafael Jesús González has written a tribute to Berta Cáceres, the indigenous environmental justice leader from Honduras who was assassinated a year ago. He'll be accompanied in this tribute by Hera Marín, who plays on handmade clay and wooden flutes. Both Rafael Jesús González and Hera Marín are part of the Xochipilli Chicano Men's Circle. Por medio milenio y más, a Berta Cáceres y a todas las mujeres de las Américas y los otros mártires muertos defendiendo la tierra. Por medio milenio y más, hemos muerto defendiendo la tierra, los bosques, los ríos, los invasores extranjeros, cegados por la codicia, enloquecidos por la ganancia, en moneda sangrienta. Hemos sufrido traidores infectados por esa locura que por esa misma moneda venden a sus propios dioses. Nuestros huesos siembran la tierra, nuestra sangre la riega, y el sagrado maíz a veces no sabe amargo, pero seguimos luchando y nuestros huesos y sangre crecerán un mundo nuevo en flor. For half a millennium and more, to Berta Cáceres and to all the martyrs of the Americas killed defending the land. For half a millennium and more, we have died defending the land, the forests, the rivers, 
from foreign invaders blinded by greed, crazed by profit in bloodied coin. We have suffered traitors, infected by that madness, that for that same coin sell their own gods. Our bones sow the earth, our blood waters it, and the sacred corn sometime tastes bitter to us. But we go on struggling, and our bones and our blood will grow a new flowering world. You just heard Rafael Jesus Gonzalez and Hera Marin from the Xochipilli Chicano Men's Circle. listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza, and on tonight's program, we go to America Latina. We are really happy to have on the line with us George Chicarello Mar. He is a longtime thinker, activist, writer, is also a professor at Drexel University. He has been working around Venezuela and documenting the people's history of Venezuela. He's the author of We Created Chavez, A People's History of the Venezuelan Revolution, and Decolonizing Dialect. He's also the author of Building the Commune, Radical Democracy in Venezuela. Thank you so much, George, for being on the line with us. Thanks for having me. So we are really excited to have you on the phone because you're going to be in town tomorrow, actually. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, So I just finished reading your book, Building the Commune, where I've been able to actually feel like, actually get some of the key lessons of how Venezuela got to where it is and what the vision, not just Chavez's vision, but so many of the people on the ground, the radical participatory democracy in progress's vision of what Venezuela can be and should be, how that can further and help guide what is happening today in Venezuela. So why don't we start off? I really appreciate this book because in such a clear and concise and easy to connect way, uh, you break down some of the many, many factors squeezing, squeezing Venezuela and squeezing so much of America Latina. You talk, of course, about the history of colonialism and imperialism, but you talk more recently about the push, that the squeeze of the IMF and other international entities that forced Venezuela into this really tough position. So why don't you set the scene for us? What were some of the factors that led to people really coming together and organizing to try to address what they saw as the exploitation of resources and people? in their country. Sure. So just speaking as broadly as possible, in the 1980s, Latin America as a whole was really being put through the ringer by neoliberal structural adjustment, which means essentially this moment in which the U.S. government is using these lending institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, to force debt-ridden countries who had just gone through a debt crisis to change the structure of their country, to lay off public workers, to raise the rates on public utilities, and to privatize goods, uh, you know, public goods left and right. And this hits Venezuela in the mid-1980s, and then really hits in 1989, with 
the sudden imposition of a uh, structural adjustment program that causes a mass rebellion by the population. The people are fed up. They decide that you know they've that enough is enough, and they take to the streets and they riot and they rebel for nearly a week. Now, this is called the Caracaso, the, the explosion in Caracas. And this is really the starting point for everything that's come since. So it begins out of this resistance to neoliberal uh, structural adjustment. But to, to be perfectly clear about it, I think also part of the story is the fact that Venezuela's resistance to neoliberalism really sets off regional and then later global resistance to neoliberalism as well. It helps to begin a global pushback that we then see uh, in what's called the so-called pink tide across Latin America, in which similar explosions and similar moments of resistance in Ecuador and Bolivia and other countries push progressive governments into power and help movements strengthen on the grassroots level. So that some of what we're seeing in, uh, you know, in Venezuela and Argentina and in other countries more than a decade ago, we're also starting to see in other places as well in things like the Occupy movement in the turn to sort of leftist populism in Spain and Greece. So we're talking about a global history and it really begins in 1989 Venezuela. That's the voice of George Chicarello Marr. He's talking to us about his latest writings, not only the book Building the Commune, Radical Democracy in Venezuela, but he's also talking to us about his book We Created Chavez, A People's History of the Venezuelan Revolution and Decolonizing Dialectics. So, George, this is a really exciting book because you really get down to, to the nitty gritty. I feel like in general, when I think about social democracy, I think about just the basics of everyone having everyone having quality education, quality health care, housing, just their basic needs met, nothing too crazy, nothing too radical. And that's where the, my imagination pretty much ends. And I think that in this book, you really get to this idea of the commune, which is more than that. It's actually having a very, very uh, specific local control of decision making and how that plays out. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about normally when people think about Venezuela, maybe they think, wow, yes, an increase of doctors and healthcare and perhaps, you know, an increase of services. But tell us a little bit more about what um, this idea in the comuna, like the bigger idea beyond just um, some of the things that people may have seen in the headlines. Sure, the commune is certainly something much more ambitious than those very basic things, but at the same time, it begins with those basic things and even something arguably more basic, which is the fact that, for example, in Venezuela, because of the oil economy for so many decades and the long-term implications of this, Venezuela doesn't produce enough food. It, it ends up importing a whole lot of food from private corporations, from other countries. And part of what the commune is seeking to do is to push back on that sort of distorted development so that Venezuelans in the countryside in particular are able to begin to produce things that they need, begin to determine what it is that a local community needs and make that, produce that, and distribute it in a socialist way. Where it gets, of course, much more ambitious is that this is actually, and this is really not talked about if we're talking about contemporary Venezuela, we hear about you know oil money at best being distributed to the people through social programs, but what we don't hear about are the radical political changes. And so a huge part of the Bolivarian process is this idea of direct democracy, and it manifests in things like the communes. And literally, what a commune is is a way for people in a local neighborhood and actually a large you know, series of neighborhoods to get together and make decisions about 
everything about producing, distributing to, you know, they can run these socialist enterprises in which the commune directly and democratically decides what is produced, how much they charge for it, how much the workers are paid, how long they work, how to distribute that, those goods, and what to do with the surplus, which is then reinvested into the commune. So we're actually just talking about a way of governing territory and space in a completely directly democratic way. And this is hugely ambitious. This doesn't exist really anywhere else on earth. And it's a massive part of what's going on in Venezuela. Now, of course, it's not easy to do that. It's not all of Venezuela that is organized in this way. And a huge important point that I try to get across in the book is that this communal project is is kind of an anti-state project. It's definitely against the, the bloated oil state and the centralized state. And it's in conflict, open conflict with much of the state, despite the fact that Chavez supported it, despite the fact that Maduro supports it. Uh, it's openly in conflict with the bureaucracy, with the high levels of the party, um, and with many you know influential Chavistas. And so this makes the struggle to develop these communes and to push them um, as an alternative vision of Bolivarianism of revolution, it makes it a very, very different, different, difficult struggle indeed. George Chicarello Mar, you are a author and thinker and professor who teaches around Latin America and also has been exploring this idea for some time now. I think that, of course, you know, most people hear you on Democracy Now! debating someone who's saying, you know, that there's a genocide happening of the wealthier, you know, genocide happening in Venezuela, you know, so you, you're often on positioned against these very extreme people that are discounting everything that all the social programs and all the changes and all the ways that Venezuela has become dramatically much more democratic. But let's just take a step back. At this point, you hinted to this that, you know, of course, this project is much messier and complicated and way more conflictive in sense of not just what people in leadership in Venezuela want, but also, you know, it's it's messy to have a very participatory democracy. How do you see the comunas or this project of very, very localized decision making and happening or, or how is it evolving at this point with uh, the current and most recent political changes in Venezuela? Venezuela is in a deep crisis at this this point, nationally, uh, macroeconomically, politically. In 2013, not only was it the case that Chavez himself passed away, leaving kind of a gaping hole in the political life of the country, in the symbolic life of the country, uh, but also it was the case that oil prices began to drop. It was the case that, you know, that the opposition went on a dramatic offensive against the, the Bolivarian revolution. Um, and as a result, you had, you know, tensions within Chavismo, tensions from the outside, of course, U.S. imperialists in the United States attempting to intervene, refusing to recognize uh, Venezuelan elections, despite the fact that they were free and fair. Um, and so things have become unwound in a pretty dramatic way. Economically, there was a problem with the currency system that the government was not quick enough to fix and has allowed a spiraling of the black market dollar, um, which has contributed to corruption, black market activity and smuggling that are really, really hurting the economy and, you know, creating the scenes and the situations that we've seen in the news. And the worst part about this is it's really created a situation in which the grassroots are still very much with the process. But, uh, you know, but a lot of the sort of centrists uh, you know, voted for the opposition in the National Assembly elections. And you've got a situation in which the overall feeling is that there's been some kind of exhaustion of the Bolivarian process. And there needs to be really a radical turn. In the book, I refer to this as the, the communal wager, the fact that the government needs to really bet on local democracy and bet on the communes and put its energies there because they 
for example, can produce what the country needs so the country is not reliant on these sort of corrupt import corporations that it's losing all this money to, so that it's not reliant on the huge Venezuelan corporations that pr provide a lot of food uh, to the population as well, but are always trying to blackmail the, you know, the government for that. So it really needs to take this wager to assume it. And that's really the only way this process will survive. It's the only way it will become re-energized for the future. George Chicarilla Mar, so you are going to be here in the Bay Area. We're in for a treat. You aren't based here in the Bay, so people are very lucky to have you here. You're actually all over. It seems like you're all over the world right now, but we are lucky to have you coming here to Oakland. Um, so why don't you talk to us about the event that will be happening tomorrow, as well as your other books, because I think that's also really exciting. So tell us about how they intersect and some of the things that folks can hear you talk about at the event tomorrow. Yeah, I'm definitely all over the place. I've been sort of traveling around, you know, speaking about these books. I'm actually living in Mexico, too, where I'm doing research on um, similar questions, popular self-defense, grassroots movements that are kind of taking their community back from the government and from the narco traffickers. And so I think these themes are are all over, you know, the, the you know, our, our present that we're that we're dealing with today. I'm really excited to be in the Bay Area. I spent a great number of years there um, and have been following events there very closely for the past few weeks in particular. I'll be speaking on Wednesday the 15th uh, from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Soul Space, which is on 1714 Telegraph Avenue. And there I'll also be speaking about, about my book, Decolonizing Dialectics, which... Um, as if you've said that, you know, building the commune is a very sort of accessible book that breaks things down and makes them very digestible. Uh, I can't say the same for decolonizing dialectics. It's a little heavier. It's a little more theoretical, but I think it's still, you know, relatively accessible. And what it tries to do is to put out and put forward a theory underlying and beneath a lot of what, you know, I've been seeing happening in Venezuela, but also globally, how it is that struggles move forward, how it is that we can take kind of the best of the dialectical tradition of Marx and Hegel um, and fuse that with, with the decolonial tradition through thinkers like Franz Fanon and many others. Um, and also through reflection, which I do talk about Venezuela in, in this book on dialectics, laying out what it means to struggle. And these are also, to be clear, these are lessons I think that matter so much for our present when we're talking about what it takes to fight Trump, you know, what, why, you know, why the Democrats are proving themselves unable to do so, and why movements in the streets need to be more combative and more frontal when they resist the, you know, the kind of policies that are coming down from above. So why don't you give our listeners again the specifics on your event? It's Wednesday, March 15th, 7 p.m. at Soul Space, uh, 1714 Telegraph Avenue. And it's co-sponsored, uh, I should also say, by Jacobin, Left Roots, and Parisia Productions. So, George Chikarilamar, if we have people listening, we reach all of Northern and Central California. We also have a lot of listeners on SoundCloud online. So if we have people listening that can't get to Oakland tomorrow night, how can they stay up on your news and analysis? I'm on Twitter at Chickmar, C-I-C-C-M-A-H-E-R, and I sometimes get in trouble on there, but it's still a good way to, uh, to follow the things that I'm up to and my travel schedule and also uh, things that I've been writing and, you know, and contributing to. So people can check out both of those books, either by making it to the event where they'll be up for sale and I can sign them as well, or buying Building the Commune directly from Verso Books or uh, Decolonizing Dialectics directly from Duke University Press. We've been speaking to George Chicarello Mar. He is a professor, a writer, thinker, author, and he has just written Building the Commune. He is also going to be speaking about decolonizing dialectics here in Oakland. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you here on Cronicas de la Raza.
Thank you so much for having me on. This next song is by La Misa Negra. Librarian, researcher, writer, and editor Eva Martinez has written for the bilingual community newspaper El Tecolote for the last 47 years. These are her thoughts about the paper. I want to talk a little bit about the history of El Tecolote newspaper for people who aren't familiar with it. The paper actually started out at San Francisco State as part of the student strike in the late 1960s out there. At that time, Juan Gonzalez had just graduated with a degree in journalism. When he was asked by the newly formed Raza Studies Department, which was the result of the strike, to create some media curriculum for the department. And he did. And then he was asked, would he like to teach? So he was hired as a teacher. And at the time, Juan was also working at the UPI, the um, news agency, and he saw that there was a real lack of diversity in the newsroom. He said it was just him and a Japanese-American photographer. And so he started to wage his own battle to diversify the newsroom by creating a newsroom in his class and encouraging more Latinos to go into the field of journalism. Their first project was the first issue of El Tecolote, which came out in August of 1970. But Juan also didn't see it as a student newspaper. He had been covering the mission when he was a student, and so he felt that the mission needed a newspaper. And so it quickly moved from the campus to the mission district, and along with the students who were a part of it, community activists began to join the crew. And it was very nomadic for a while, wherever they could find space, in a garage, in a nonprofit's office that had lent them a desk, you know, that's where they were. But the life that grew around El Tecolote as a progressive community newspaper that, that had made a commitment to bilingualism, because everything was in English and Spanish, and was covering the community in a way that mainstream media did not, was amazing. People grew up in that Tecolote newsroom. They learned journalism. And from the very beginning, following Juan's idea, it was always a training ground. So whoever came in the door 
was given an assignment and mentored through the process of becoming a reporter. So a lot of people started their journalism career at El Tecolote. And along with the news reporting, and it broke some big stories. It broke a story about not having Spanish translators at General Hospital when the Latino staff of the hospital came and approached Tecolote. So they did a story on it. And as a result of that story, along with the activism, the Office of Translation or whatever it's called was established there. They also broke a story on the emergency telephone line that because of the lack of bilingual operators, it took several minutes longer for someone speaking in Spanish to get help. And we all know what that means in a life and death situation. Minutes count. So they also had a, um, a long time love of the arts, the uh, graphic arts, poetry, creative writing. So that was always present in El Tecolote. And like I said earlier, the, uh, the supplement provided a place for people to write. But even in the regular pages of Tecolote, there was always some artistic article going on. So here we are this year in August. El Tecolote will be 47 years old. It's middle-aged now. And I am so proud of it. It's still bilingual. A lot of other newspapers, even mainstream newspapers, have tried to go bilingual. They've tried it and they failed. And here is El Tecolote with a tiny paid staff and dozens of volunteers that come through to help. The translators, the editors, the photographers, the writers, everyone plays a role. But it has still managed to remain true to bilingualism because it wanted to reach the widest range of people, whether you spoke only English, only Spanish, or you could even practice both in the pages of Tecolote. And it's also provided an important pipeline to journalism careers. There are some amazing writers, photographers that have come through Tecolote. I'm just really proud of the paper. An exciting bilingual English, Spanish, and even Spanglish poetry anthology, Poetry in Flight, Poesia en Vuelo, is now available. The beautiful book with its 69 poems by 56 fiery poets is edited by Francisco X. Alarcón, Eva Martínez, and Nina Serrano, with Harold Teresón. Poetry in Flight, Poesia en Vuelo, is published by Acción Latina, the nonprofit organization that produces the bilingual community newspaper El Tecolote, now in its 45th year. The cover art is created by the great local artist Juan R. Fuentes, and the book is designed by Adrián Arias. The foreword is written by the Poet Laureate of the United States, Juan Felipe Herrera. Today's program features nine of these fine poets and their work. You are invited to attend the book release party for Poetry in Flight, Poesia en Vuelo, this Sunday, March 19th at 2 p.m., with refreshments, live music, community, and great poems. It will be held at Acción Latina's newly refurbished gallery space in the heart of El Barrio at 2958 24th Street in San Francisco. The book is dedicated to the memory of Francisco X. Alarcón, Mamacoa, and Alfonso Texidor. We begin with Rafael Jesús González, first in Spanish, followed by his own English translation. This is Rafael Jesús González, accompanied by Gerardo Marín, from the Xochipilli Latino Men's Circle.
toda una vida. Cuando uno baila con el viejo coyote, se compromete a la flor y al canto. Se gasta una vida con la moneda de la palabra florida. Allí, dicen, se encuentran lo negro y lo rojo, lo arraigado, la verdad, quién sabe. Se vive una vida, y si su flor y canto toma raíz en los corazones, es vida bien gastada. On being honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the City of Berkeley in May 2015. A whole life When one dances with old coyote, one commits to flower and song. A life is spent with a coin of the flowering word. There they say meet the black and the red, the rooted truth. Who knows? A life is lived, and if its flower and song take root in hearts, it is a life well spent. La luna llena llama a los inocentes muertos por la policía. La luna llena llama a los enamorados que deleitan en su luz. Y se dice que también llaman a los hombres lobos y los vampiros. Es cierto de los enamorados. Siempre he sido de ellos. No sé de hombres lobos y vampiros. Viven entre nosotros. Son los más allá de la ley, que matan a inocentes. Dice en nombre de la ley. No necesitan de la luna.
the full moon calls to the innocent killed by police. The full moon calls those in love who delight in its light, and it is said it also calls the werewolves and vampires. It is true of those in love. I have always been of them. I know not of werewolves and vampires. They live among us. It is those beyond the law who kill the innocent, supposedly in the name of the law. They have no need of the moon. My name is Renee Peña-Govea, and my poem is entitled At Home, Para Dieguito. You were born at home, on a cinder block and plywood bed, on a hill that smelled so much of coffee it steeped your dreams. But you still wonder tremulously if that aroma memory can be true. And some pictures of it, your city, flash like furious moths, like after images against your eyelids, and you need another person to remember with you. To say, I too was there when those men the color of raw sugar gripped their toes across the metal bar of the tall, tall, tall swing set in Dolores Park, their bird-thin shadows dancing liquid above the sand, and the congueros played on, implacable under the pendulous date palms, and the beautiful golden boys on their velvet beds of grass devoured the sky in those epidemic years. That disease only called at your doorstep when they told you heavy-faced, that your preschool teacher had died, and they did say AIDS, softly though, like snow. And when Hugh Masekela sang, Bring back Nelson Mandela, on the radio, on your way to spoon miso and tahini, out of cylinders at rainbow, it was daytime. The popcorn clouds seeded with gold because your dad only worked nights, as needed, but your parents could still raise their child in the belly or more like the southern toenail of this glittering dragon city by the bay. Down by the ballpark before it existed, you skipped past trailers to get to TikTok, where they handed you a glazed donut and a cheese and pickle sandwich on wax paper, which you ate at a scarred desk in a tiny cabin under the Third Street Bridge with your dad, the bridge tender. Sometimes you did sleep there, on a wooden bed fastened to a wall, army blanket burritoed around you, the slap-slap of the water on the pilings thrumming dark and luxuriously. My city, my city, my city. In this city, snail trails remain, invisible mostly, but lustrous as glycerin to the rememberers. The library, where your sister made her debut at age five on a four-string guitar, your mom taught her, and you on the accordion still stands, but it's re-sculpted, re-occupied, re-envisioned, and they whitewashed Victor Hara's face and other gente right off the wall and erased the newspaper photo of girl you marching outside the building, which in leaner times had to be defended by children with signs. 
So many photos were never taken, so many people sluiced away, and the choices seemed to lay there, bright as gleaming olives. Rage against gentrification on furious websites, carnal protests, or elusive ballots. Walk down 24th Street simmering with bile as you shell out a dollar or more for a concha, and steal yourself because you are a native carajo. But what of those images that rise like sharp ash, like scream-bright flowers on oilcloth in the middle of the day? Maybe you can never go home again, but what if you stayed in your home up and left you? Your baby was born at home, in this narrow city, like your sister before him and you before her, and so your choice is clear and you must bear it and claim it your city. Not without silvery ribbons of sadness or full-throated pain, or the occasional F the Elisac dancing hotly on your tongue. But for your son, also, with the trumpet on carnaval morning, ink in el tecolote, words sweet as elote, as you tell him about home. My name is Jeannie Zukav, and the name of my poem is When Women Are Trees. When women are trees, they breathe the world in and out. They know everything, and everything knows them. Every time they speak, life is easy. When women are rain, they leap between the clouds and earth. They know everything, and everything knows them. Every time they soothe the soil, life is easy. When women are lava, they rise up from the center of the world. Their blood circulates and creates and creates. They know everything, and everything knows them. Every time their love surges a rhythm, life is easy. When women are mountains, mother arms around the world, stable bones curving into hawked-winged skies, they know everything, and everything knows them. Every time they mediate, life is easy. When women are free, violence fallen away, wisdom healing generations of tyrant fears, they remember everything, and everything remembers them. Every time they laugh, life is easy. The following poem is written and read by Aurelia Lorca. The Heliopolis held 3,000 more passengers than capacity. She was the first ship to leave for Hawaii from Andalusia. How did they fit that many people? What models did they use? Bodies upon bodies, like a slave ship, except it was a slave ship. Fine human freight. The newspapers called them to break the Asian workforce. My grandfather's parents and his oldest brother, Juan, who was five years old, were escaping a kind of unfathomable poverty and oppression my father says I will never know, much less understand. There had been a famine, 
and the Spanish government allowed such taking of Andaluces, half-savage ordinarios y analfabetos with too much Moorish blood. The ship returned to port because there was not enough food other than bread and coffee brewed with salt water and the bones of arms and the swollen bulges of bellies crying with the pulse of filth and vomit and ocean. If I am quiet enough, I can smell the smells too, and it will make me angry instead of grateful. Mothers wrapping their children tight in blankets and fear. Stories of sick babies thrown overboard. The warmth of Hawaii was heat and anger. There was no land. It was a trick, indentured servitude, a nicer way of saying slavery. The pain in their stomachs never went away. They gambled onto another ship for California, the state with a made-up name, and were given a choice, Hawaii or deportation back to Spain. They learned not to cry. They learned how to make the rest of their children become American. There is no other way to say this. What about words? Words dreamt of and believed so strongly that by the time they reach generations, they believe they are true. Unfamiliar morphemes, strange sounds, do not translate. My grandfather and his sisters and brothers would learn English, learn how to read and write a few words. They would learn anything, have American first names, though it would take them almost 40 years to have the papers to prove they were American-born. Don't talk about the past. They all would say, it was better than feudalism in Spain. It was all better than Franco in Spain. Don't talk about the past, though in 2014, the words communist, agitator, bootlegger are meaningless, no longer subversive. I want to get drunk. I want to scream. I want to scream for the dead, all those who are lost to the history of the past and the present. Like my father, I am named after my father's father instead of my mother's father, just so I do not carry the curse of my great-uncle's name. Juan. Juan Henares. I will say his name in Spanish. I am not afraid. My grandfather and the rest of his siblings all had American names. They called him John, but only they were American. He was illegal, as if any human can be illegal. I can see him now, 112 years old, but not bent. A giant holding a cane more like a weapon than anything else, the way Belita, his mother, wore her rings. I can hear his laughs at our Americanness, how we sacrifice memory for the American dreams. Yet our duende is always with us, no matter how hard we aspire to achieve bigger, faster, more, build a wall, and no matter how hard we try to forget. He is all we do not speak of other than the language of shame, the language of silence. It has burned my tongue with hives and bitter red dots. Hence I must speak, I must give the words life. Nothing can soothe me other than the violence of my words, the struggle with language, the struggle to find meaning. But where, where, where should I begin? With my great uncle, Juan. Hence, here is the story. Juan Henares is a ghost who is 112 years old. He came from Lucena, a pueblo the size of a pea outside of Córdoba. He came on the Heliopolis, the first ship to Hawaii that had to go back to port in Malaga because it was so poorly equipped. Though its maximum occupancy was supposed to be a 1,000 passengers, it carried him with another 3,891 Andalusian peasants who the Spanish state characterized in newspapers as shiftless dreamers due to their Moorish blood. The ship went back to port because the people were only fed 
bread and coffee brewed with seawater. There was not enough food. How did they fit 3,000 extra people on that ship? I cannot wrap my mind around it. The Honolulu newspapers called them human freight, white labor from the south of Spain to break up the Asian workforce. They were going to make them Americans, white Americans, good Americans. But in Hawaii, there were still whips and the workers were still charming. They never planned on staying. Someday they would return to Spain when there was enough money, but Franco, he changed that. I am an accident of history. Twenty years later, when Juan Hanares gave himself to the Sacramento River, I wonder if his hat was tilted, drowning in the American dream. I have given him many names in my stories. Juan Granada, Johnny Pride, the Gitano Stagger Lee. He lives in all of us. His name was Juan. He was neither a conquistador or a friar. He was a Spaniard on Andalus, an indivisible immigrant whose history has been lost except for one photograph and a name that has been forgotten as a way to remember. As I search through my heart to understand him, I can hear his suicide cries. I can hear him laughing because he is still here. His story has been repeated over and over again. Whenever we have been lost, whenever we have failed, whenever we have won, in the curse of his name, he has been there and said prayers for us all and laughs with me at the dream I struggle to believe in. Make them Americans, make them Americans, make them Americans, make them Americans. And that they did. That they did. They made my grandfather one of the first Hispanic general contractors on the Monterey Peninsula. They made my father a community activist and an affirmative action officer. They made my father's twin, my uncle, a teacher in the prisons working with the students society did not want. And they made me an American poet who is free to say, remember, remember, remember. My name is Marisa Thompson, and this poem is called Dear Mr. President. Dear Mr. President, this is a photo of me. I am holding a brown and white cat so that his back legs dangle and his skin wrinkles around his shoulders. But he doesn't seem to mind. He lets me hold him this way. I am eight years old. A newspaper man took this photo when I'd been at the stopping house for two days in Chiapas. The people were very kind there. They gave me hugs and messed up my hair the way my uncles and cousins do. This was two weeks before I arrived in your country. I am not in the newspapers here. The adults here look like police, except they stay here all the time and they yell at us. I count the number of boys in this cell. I don't know how many there are when we are standing up, but it is more crowded when we are lying down. We are waiting for our families to come. I hope my aunt comes soon. Sometimes, if we see the guards relax a little, we tell jokes and rhymes and laugh, and we see the stones in their faces soften out of the corner of our eyes. Then some of them yell a little less. Some of them speak in Spanish the way a bird walks around with one wing broken. I think it would be better if we understood each other. If you let us go to our families, we will be good, we will go to school and learn how to tell stories that make people happy. 
like cats that let you hold them and trees and other growing things so that they smile instead of holding their faces still like walls. This poem is called Water Crossing. Where would you go if you had to run? Through the cane break, machete leaves that draw less blood than the lash. Run from those that steal children. Run. Would you wait in the water? Wait in the water, children. God's gonna trouble el agua, las fabricas, pockmarking the land like plantations. The two shirts on your back worth ten cents a day. Run on the snake back of a train. Burnish your footprints from the earth with leaves, from the sand with wool, because they are always behind you, smelling for your blood, your body they would pick from their teeth. Run, where would you go to find your mother? Because they think you hold a different god on your tongue. Run from the vice grips, from the armies who twist bayonets in your womb, who forge hells of fire falling from the sky, from bullets that blistered the walls like tracks of heroin needles on arms. Where would you run to? What possible death would you choose? Would you dare to ask whatever angels for safe passage and water to cross? Would you set your compass, your eyes on a star tilting in your vision and run, 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 run? And if you could finally stop running, if your heart for a day, a week, a century pulled back from throttling your lungs and rested and rested and rested, would you still shroud your own face? Would you boil the seas to Lethe, clutch guns at the doorway, or would you leave the door open, offer sweet water and maize to strangers at your hearth? My name is Norm Maddox, and the name of the piece is At Dusk, written from a patio in Havana. The murmurings of the neighborhood, listening to una bulla, a cacophony of sounds, music, Conversation, silverware against empty plates, the sound of content, full bellies. The same chattering sparrows recounting their day like no one is listening, only chirping, barking like dogs at the setting sun. What languages are we speaking? Dog, bird, tree, human, breeze, motor? In English, all in Spanish, no matter. The earth knows only that it's time for the stars to have their say. Prayer, a poem by Rafael Manriquez, translated and narrated by Marci Valdivieso. The sense of getting nowhere gives me nausea. The sense of being cast aside by those on top makes me so sad. My Goddess God, grant me the inspiration to stay strong. Make me humble and honestly happy with what I live and achieve. It is more than enough to see and work with all my senses and glorious to know, to be thankful, 
to appreciate and share, and so foolish to feel defeated. My Goddess God, grant me the ability to be simple and not wish for grandeur. Grant me health, clarity, intelligence, and courage. This I ask of you. My Goddess God, all this is within me and within each of us. The privilege of music and of poetry, it is so great. Grant me the ability to appreciate these without hopes nor dreams of greatness. I just want to continue living, finding these. I just want to follow my blessed voice, my music, and my poetry, and share them without ambition. You've been listening to part two of our Poetry in Flight, Poesia en Vuelo series here on La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, KPFA. You've just heard the poetry of Rafael Jesús González, accompanied by Gerardo Marín, René Peñagadea, Jeannie Zakoff, Aurelia Lorca, Adrián Arias, Marissa Thompson, and Rafael Manriquez, with a translation by Marci Valdivieso, and accompanied by himself on guitar. You are all invited to the grand release party for the book, Poetry in Flight, Poesia en Vuelos, on Sunday, March 19th at 2 p.m. at 2958 24th Street at Acción Latina's Juan R. Fuentes Gallery in San Francisco. That's this Sunday at 2 p.m. Many thanks to Eva Martinez and Cristina Velasco for assistance in preparing this program. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas. And this is the calendar of Bay Area events and happenings for the week of March 14th through the 27th. For Friday, March 17th, join community organizers and rappers Bamboo, Ruby Barra, and more for a night of hip-hop, rap, and spoken word with Bay Area's collective Chulita Vinyl Club at The New Parish, 1743 San Pablo Avenue, starts at 9 p.m. For more information, go to thenewparish.com. For Saturday, March 18th, the 32nd Annual Empowering Women of Color Conference, Unbound and Unboxed, Owning, Asserting, and Uplifting Our Whole Selves, is designed to answer the call for collective healing issued by the ongoing state of racial, political, environmental, and economic trauma. This year's theme speaks to the need for collective care and affirmation as a means of preparation, preservation, and resistance. Now more than ever, women of color can no longer afford to neglect ourselves while on the front lines of global battles against social injustice. This is at Poly Ballroom at UC Berkeley. Starts from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. For more information on the conference, go to ewocc.wordpress.com. For Sunday, March 19th, join El Tecolote for a free community book party as they celebrate the release of a new poetry anthology from the Mission District, Poetry in Flight, Poesia en Vuelos, Anthology in Celebration of El Tecolote, edited by Francisco Alarcón, Eva Martinez, Harold Tereson, and our very own Nina Serrano. This powerful 140-page anthology features 69 insightful contemporary poems in Spanish, English, and Spanglish by 56 fiery poets speaking with a lyrical passion on equality, inclusion, freedom, 
justice, gender identity, gentrification, and more. This is at Acción Latina, 2958 24th Street in San Francisco. Starts at 2 p.m. For more information, go to accionlatina.org. For Wednesday, March 22nd, Mujeres en Luna Llena, a night of poetry and music celebrating Women's Month with a play about feminism and poetry by Sara Marinelli and music performances by Trio Cambio. This is at the Mission Cultural Center. 2868 Mission Street starts at 7 p.m. MissionCulturalCenter.org. For Friday, March 24th, in partnership with the Secretaria de Relaciones Exteriores de México and the Consulate General of Mexico in San Francisco, the Mexican Museum is proud to present the exhibition Tramas Urbanas, Urban Patterns, featuring the textural work of acclaimed Mexican visual artist Paloma Torres. Created over the last three years as part of the Sistema Nacional de Creadores de Arte, Tramas Urbanas is a visually provocative collection of abstract sculptures and handmade textiles based on a series of aerial photographs the artist took over Mexico City at the Mexican Museum in San Francisco. Fort Mason Center, Marina Boulevard, Building D, starts at 6 p.m. MexicanMuseum.org Also for Friday, March 24th, join Bay Area's own La Misa Negra and Locura for a night of cumbia, dance groups, and rumba at the New Parish. 1743 San Pablo Avenue starts at 9 p.m. TheNewParish.com And for Saturday, March 25th, live cumbia and sonidero music with the Bay Area's own Pasto Seco Band and Califia Armada. This is at La Estrellita, 446 East 12th Street in Oakland. Starts at 8.30 p.m. And this has been a calendar of events and happenings for the Bay Area. If you would like to add your event to the calendar, please email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. And for more information on our show, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Chronicles. Feliz noches!